I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. This is episode 18, and after a couple weeks of discussing voters, we're back with public officials. My guest this week is Tom Hughes, who has over 40 years of experience in public office. He was first elected to the Hillsborough City Council in 1976. He then served on the Hillsborough Planning Board from 1985 to 2000, and then the mayor of Hillsborough from 2001 to 2009. Most recently, he was the president of the Metro Council from 2011 to 2019, a position that, as he points out, is relatively transparent but extremely powerful and important. Tom sits down with me in the White Tiger studio and discusses his very long career in politics, and I'm just going to jump right into the interview. Welcome to the studio, Tom. Thank you, Jack. You've been around in politics for a long time. About 40 years. And you've probably seen a whole lot of stuff. So I'm going to just start with the question that I ask all the guests. What is something that used to outrage you that no longer does, and what led to the change? I think probably the thing that, I don't know, outraged, I seldom get outraged, quite frankly. But I I used to be very impatient with people who just didn't seem to get it. I mean, they didn't understand the process and they, or they were, they were coming to us with requests that were so clearly self-centered that it just was very frustrating, particularly for somebody who was in a position that we really had to represent the community and we had to do what was in the best interest of the community. And here are people who were asking these stupid things. The reality is that as as I began to listen to that, it's it's just the frustration that people have, that they feel helpless. They feel like government is going to do what it wants to do, it. And it's a kind of a collective entity outside of their outside of their control. And anytime you do something that they don't like, they they feed into that. And it just is it's it's a sort of a natural response. I got a lot more patient with it. We're here to listen to what people have to say. And even though it's frustrating and even though it's often repetitive and even though it's self-centered, you begin to get into that mode where it's just my job to sit here and listen to people. I even had one experience when I was on the planning commission where we had a community that was very hot, very upset about something that we were about to approve. But what we were about to approve was consistent with our with our land use plan and our zoning code. And so we were going to have to approve it. And they gathered out in the hall after the decision was made and that you could see them out there kind of buzzing around like bees. 
reason the woman that had been involved in the group came back in, I happened to be running the meeting that night. I assumed she was going to blast us. And she came up to the microphone and said, and I said, ma'am, you've had your time. The case is closed. She said, I just want to come back in and thank you folks for listening to us. She said, I, I really felt like we stated our case. We understand why you made your decision, and but you listened to us. And that was really an eye opener that there actually were people out there who would be grateful just for the opportunity of having somebody to listen to them. And do you tell that story because that's an uncommon occurrence in your it, experience? It, I never had that happen before. I had never had anybody else bother to come back and thank us for just listening. And you were ready for her to express outrage or disapproval or yeah. something. Yeah, and didn't want to continue the discussion beyond where you could do it. And so the unusual part, I suspect that there are more people who feel that way than, than express it. I have heard from other elected officials that a lot of people just want to be heard. They don't necessarily expect to get what they want but that they just want the sense that they have been listened to and taken into account. Do you think that that is in your experience? Well, I, th- I mean, I think that's partly it. I think the most reasonable people that come before you, that's what they want. So this is a <laughs> podcast about outrage. And so I want to yeah. talk to you about your experience with outrage. So you must have encountered quite a bit of outrage in your time in office. Well, I, I, interestingly enough, I encountered it a lot more when I was on the planning commission than I did in any of my elected office. As president of Metro, of course, uh, we also run the zoo. And so so we would periodically hear from the folks who wanted us to herd all of our elephants into a truck and take them down to Northern California and turn them loose into a sanctuary and would come before us periodically and tell us that when we ultimately went to meet our maker, we would have to answer for being cruel to those elephants in the zoo. And were these people, were they relatively calm and reasonable in this presentation to you? No. Or they were they were themselves quite angry? They were themselves quite outraged. Now, understand that because they had a principle of not supporting the zoo, they wouldn't actually pay for an admission to the zoo and go into the zoo. So we had expanded the elephant quarters, for example, from about an acre to about six and a half acres. Most of them had never seen that. And so they were really we're talking about how cruel we were to elephants with absolutely no basis for that discussion at all. So now, was, now again, in your experience, did some of or a lot of the outrage and disagreement and disapproval you see come from people who didn't necessarily have all the facts? No, yeah, I think that's that's quite true. A lot of the people that we heard from tend to see things from their own relatively narrow perspective. When I chaired meetings or uh, when I was mayor, particularly, I would urge people that if, you know, there's a long list of you that have signed up to test testify. If you hear somebody saying what you're going to say, feel free to not feel like you have to come up and say it. And almost nobody took me up on that. And people would come up and say, so the person in front of me just said that this decision would make their life miserable. What I'm going to say is different. It will make my life miserable. (laughs) Now, this is what you identified early as sort of your source of outrage, that people just really see the government from their own perspective. Yet you indicated that you understand that more now. What gives you this equanimity? Because I could easily imagine somebody who served 16 years in these positions and you were an elected office longer than that, just being frustrated and saying people just only see it from their point of view, but that's not how you're saying it. So what is it that brought you to this equanimity? I quite frankly don't know when. I I was on the planning commission for almost 15 years and mayor for eight then. So I spent a lot of time listening to people and somewhere in there, and I think maybe I was more frustrated on the planning commission than I was as mayor, in part because it just seemed to me it's going to take as long as it takes. I think the frustration is you're taking my time. So in some respects, that's looking at it from my perspective. It isn't really justifiable to criticize people for looking at it from their perspective. So I just kind of came to the conclusion that it's just what you it's just what you do. So that brings me to a question that I do tend to ask a lot of people. What is it that got you into politics? 
my stepsister's husband was on the Hillsborough City Council back in the, in the 70s. And he came to me in 76 and urged me to run for city council. And his line of reasoning was that there was significant disconnect with what the public wanted out of a city council and that he was trying to drag them into the 20th century and was very frustrated that he couldn't do that. And he really believed that having help would get him across the... And uh, he, he thought I could I could help. I had another stepsister who was dating a guy who was in public a public relations company. And he sat down with me at the, actually at the same discussion and said, I can organize your campaign so that I... He said, I can't guarantee that if you don't follow my advice, you won't win anyway. But I can guarantee that if you follow my advice, you'll win. So it was the combination of seeing a sort of a mission and uh, seeing a way clear that if I just applied a little self-discipline, I could accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Did you have to talk yourself into any of the runs after the first one where now that you've experienced public life, was there anything that made you say, well, I could get back out of this pretty happily? You know, I after I was termed out as mayor, I really wanted to be mayor. I had uh, thought about running for mayor back in 1980. I had just gotten a job for the Le- with the League of Oregon Cities, and so I was off doing that for a while. The mayor's job was something that I really wanted to do. I knew what it was. I knew how I could do. I knew that I had a skill set that would adapt itself really well to being mayor, and I, I wanted to do that. Being metro president was not on my bucket list of things I wanted to do. I had people out in Hillsboro who were very frustrated with Metro. And when they looked at the people who were had currently filed, which was uh, a council, uh, a member of the Metro Council and the head of Thousand Friends of Oregon, uh, they were very frustrated with those that choice and had decided that I was probably the only logical person to represent them in the race. And so they put a lot of pressure on me to do that. And so once again, you were recruited. So I was and- recruited for that one. And I was more reluctant, quite frankly. Not only is it a bigger job, it's a way bigger electorate. Oh, what ha- what's the number of votes that were cast when you were mayor of Hillsborough versus Metro president? Oh, the electorate at that point in time was probably 30,000 that voted in, that voted down the ballot that far, and I probably won 16. The first election as president of Metro, uh, I won 197,000 to 196,000. So that's roughly 10 times larger an electorate, and I imagine it was more than 10 times the effort to run that campaign. No, that was, I got in late, first of all, but, uh, so it was about the same, no, it was, it was a full year campaigning for Metro president. And most of it was stuck in a room someplace on my cell phone dialing for dollars, which is way different than than mayor. I think I I spent, I think I may have spent $10,000 on the first race for mayor. And that was, that set a record for the most money spent on a mayor's race in the history of Hillsborough. And it's been blown away recently. Roughly, what did you spend on your Metro race? I I raised and spent close to a million dollars. So that is a hundred times. hundred times. So you had an electorate 10 times larger and a hundred times larger campaign. Do you think that that's pretty common that as you scale up to these larger offices, the amount of money you need to raise gets exponentially larger? Oh, yeah. You know, what you do at the local level is you go bang on doors. And what you need money for essentially is printing. When I first ran for city council, I think I spent $600. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. 
We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. Speaking of outrage, a lot of people, particularly young people, I am a college professor and I've been a professor for a quarter century, and this is a pretty consistent form of outrage among young people is that money is too important in politics. And a lot of people actually think that money is the only thing that drives political outcomes. You've gone from having to raise very little on a mayoral campaign to having to raise 100 times that much for uh, Metro run. How do you feel about the role of money in politics? No, I mean, I agree. I think that money plays a much a much larger role than it should. It's not as direct an influencer on a, on people once they get elected. I always had the ability to forget who'd given me money. And so almost nobody could come to me as Metro president and say, mm, you remember? And I think that goes on very little. But the amount of time that a person running for public office has to spend raising money is, is I think, exorbitant. One of the things at a, at a race that high, one of the reasons you got to raise money is that you got to hire help. And there are people who are experienced uh, fundraisers who are experienced at organizing campaigns way better than I was. So you and have to raise money to hire people to help you raise money. Exactly. <laughs> but, but then most of the money that you raise is for television. In the primary election, because we got in late, we didn't, didn't raise enough money to do much TV. And so my campaign manager said that if you're going to use an, a medium, own the medium. So we couldn't afford TV, so we owned radio for the primary, and that seemed to work. But then in the general election, it was mostly for TV, just for time on TV. We spent, I think, $4,000 producing the ad, and we did one ad. But the knowledge and skill of my campaign manager was really something that I, I didn't bring to the race. So two different races and two different offices with a different <clears throat> scale of fundraising and constituent outreach. What about once you were in office, the difference between having the residents of Hillsborough be your constituents or the residents of the metro planning area, did you feel like you could have as good of a relationship with your constituents in both of those offices, or was there a big difference there as well? Big difference. I About three years into the Metro presidency, I, I ran into, a, I was coming down an elevator at a Providence hospital, and a guy kept eyeballing me, and I was pretty used to people eyeballing me by that time. And he says, you're Tom Hughes, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He says, you were mayor of Hillsborough, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, you were a great mayor. I said, well, thank you. And he said, whatever happened to you? <laughs> and you do, you disappear in Metro. Metro is, is the agency that, that has a tremendous amount of power. Transportation planning, the zoo, the convention center, the expo center. We own 17,000 acres of open space. It's a fairly important, significant organization that nobody knows anything about. Right. Well, you know, I've lived in the Portland area for almost 13 years, and I probably either voted for you or against you because probably. I'm a regular voter. Yeah. And I teach political science. Yeah. A local state university, and yet when I first met you, I had no idea who you were. Yeah. If I'd met the governor, if the governor had walked into my class, I would have known any of the last three or four governors. Yeah. So the transparency of this, how do you, did that affect your work? Was that liberating, or did that create problems for you to, that essentially there wasn't this public knowledge and appreciation of what was going on? Part of what you do in both jobs is you deal with soft power. 
Hillsborough has a, has a weak mayor council manager form of government. So the mayor has, has no authority, uh, no technical authority, but you have a tremendous amount of influence. And a lot of that is because people think the mayor has a lot of power. And you do as long as you don't ever try to exercise it. The minute you start telling people what to do, they're going to remind you that the charter says you can't do that and then you've, you've lost your influence. The Metro president doesn't have either power or a whole lot of influence outside of the building and outside of a fairly knowledgeable sphere of people around the Portland metropolitan area who know what Metro does and you know, the, actually the building community, the solid waste community, which I forgot to mention as part of one of our responsibilities. And so um, there's a bunch of people that know what we do. It's just not very public. And yet it's an elected position. An elected position. And in fact, our, I know that our planning council is the only directly elected metro planning council in the country, which is what makes Correct. metro unique. Given that it's kind of a specialist's game and it operates not only sort of transparently, but at a high scale, how did you reach voters? What were your ads like? And how did you talk to the voters about what you plan to do? It's all about timing, quite frankly. So I had just spent eight years as mayor of Hillsborough during a period of time when we grew in population fairly significantly. We grew even more importantly in terms of jobs creation. And I had taken as one of my roles as mayor was to sell the community to people who wanted uh, who wanted to move industry there. Somebody once told me that during the eight years I was mayor, we grew 31,000 new jobs out in our industrial corridor. So in 2010, when I ran for Metro president, we were in the throes of a fairly significant recession. And I was able to be the one of the three people running for Metro that had both experience and a credible record of doing job growth. So our one ad that we ran, we didn't we ran it over and over and over again, but we knew from our early polling that that message really resonated. And so I had an ad with a guy who ran the East Metro Economic Development Commission, who in the first part of the ad and said Tom Hughes recruited three billion dollars worth of investment in Hillsborough and he can do the same thing for the for the metro region. Running as the jobs guy was a very successful thing to do. The other benefit I had, I, what we discovered when we did the polling was that nobody knew any of us. None of the three of us could get double-digit recognition, name recognition. But if you did a, a fairly accurate and fair generic description of each of us, my generic description polled about 65%. So we knew two things at that point in time, that all I had to do was to make my generic the message and that number two, that they were going to have to go negative in order to overcome that. And the ads in the general election in particular were the typical candidate doing good sparkly things in color and happy music. And then his opponent, Tom Hughes, who is a lobbyist for developers. And that had the effect of, interestingly enough, of ticking some people off. I think that was what gave me the Willamette Week endorsement. Your they, opponents went negative and that was yeah, something that was not pleasing to... Well, no, it just wasn't true. I mean, I had been, I had gone to work for a law firm in between the two positions and I had done some lobbying for a, lo a development down in Wilsonville. But to say after 40 years of public service, to describe me as a, a lobbyist for developers was not particularly accurate either. A lot of strategists that I've talked to say that going negative is really a last resort. No one wants to do it because it does turn off a lot of voters. Yeah. It seems like politics is all about negativity. 
And that is probably true at the national level. But the general operating principle is don't go negative because it does turn people off. Well, and see, I had the opportunity to not go negative. There's a fairly conservative group out in East County. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's, it was created by a fairly right-wing activist out there. And they asked me to come out and speak to them one night. And they raked me over the coals. And at the end of the evening, one of the guys got up and said, you know, we've given you a pretty hard time here tonight, but you do know that everybody in this room voted for you. <laughs> And that was almost as scary as the fact that they were being critical of us. Is it common that even people who support you are easily outraged by your choices and decisions as a public official? Or was that not what your experience was? I don't really think they are outraged. I don't take it personally because it never, it almost never is directed at me personally. It's a policy or the agency or the, you know, the institution or government in general. I often try to glean a little advice for people about how to relate to politics and Politics is very personal. It impacts our lives in deep, important ways, but it is an extra blow to take things personally. But as you indicate, if if you see that it's about the policy or it's maybe just about people's general reaction to the government, then you don't have to take it personally, even though it's being hurled at you. And if you do take it personally, or the other criteria that I tell a lot of young people who will get involved in politics is if you can't stand to lose, don't get into politics because sooner or later you're going to lose. And if you take that personally, I mean, I have friends who have never recovered from losing. If, if that's the way you're going to be, then, you know, sit in your chair and drink sassafras. Right. You have to be ready to lose. You got to be ready to lose and you got to not take the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune seriously and personally. Seriously, maybe, but not personally. Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to end. I want to thank you for coming in and talking right. to me, Tom. It's thank been great. Thank Well, that's our interview for this week. I'd like to thank Tom Hughes for coming in and sitting down and sharing his experience with me. Next week, we're going to move back behind the scenes, and we're going to move to the other end of the experience spectrum. I'll be speaking with Candlin Johnson, a young person who's just getting started in politics, but who is doing some big, important things. She is currently the campaign coordinator for the League of Women Voters of Oregon and the deputy campaign manager for People Not Politicians, which is a campaign to bring an independent redistricting commission to Oregon. And if they succeed at the stage they're in right now, there'll be a ballot measure this fall to create that independent commission. I want to note that right now I'm in Los Angeles at a podcast convention, learning all kinds of things about the art and science of podcasting. One of the things I'm learning about is how to grow my audience and how to get sponsorships and advertisers and do marketing and outreach. And I'm inspired by the scrappiness of the people who are here to reach out to you, my listeners, and say, if anybody's interested in supporting the podcast, you can go to our website, potholeproblempodcast.com, backslash join. There are a few options there. One is you can just sign up for our newsletter. You can also make a donation or you can become a sponsor. If you don't have the financial means to become a sponsor or to make a donation, but you have connections with people who are, you can send me an email at jack.miller at pdx.edu, connecting me up with somebody who you think might be able to support the podcast financially. It's a difficult thing always to ask for money, but there is a lot of effort that goes into the production of this podcast. And as I've learned from a lot of the people I've spoken to here at the conference, that time and effort should be compensated in some way or other. So here I am asking. All right, well, enough for the self-promotion and the pitch for financial support. I'm going to finish, of course, as always, with a song. This is I Miss You Darling by Biscuits and Salty Gravy, 
recorded live at Mississippi Pizza in Portland, Oregon, a long time ago, June 19th, 2012. Thanks to everybody for listening, and I hope you enjoy the song. Thank you.